0: we looked at the first half of 1 Corinthians 13 it's probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible where Paul describes love and he's doing that to say to the Corinthians y'all are focused on spiritual gifts which is wonderful however they need to be done in the context of love or they don't register in heaven God doesn't see it if you do these things from any other motivation and then he describes love in verses 4 through 7 again that's a very famous section and we said that is not just a description of love, it's a description of Jesus, and it's not just a description of Jesus because God desires for us to be conformed into the image of Jesus. It's also kind of a a, a job description for us. It's what God desires in us. And we talked about maybe grabbing one of those phrases that we wrestle with and saying this is, this is an area where I need to grow. So uh, 1 through 7 is really a description of love. Now we're going to look at 8 through 13 is talking about the permanence of love, again, all of this is in the context of how do we use spiritual gifts in corporate worship. This is a how do we function together as the body when we gather. That's the big picture. Smaller picture, how, does, how are spiritual gifts a part of that? And even in the midst of that, what does love have to do with all of those things? So starting in verse 8, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. is love. This idea that love never fails, that's really what everything that follows is about. It's explaining this idea that love never fails. That looks backwards. Love always perseveres. That was the last thing Paul said. It's tenacious. It never gives up. And there's never a situation where love is irrelevant, where it's not applicable, where it doesn't fit. So it never fails in that regard. Love is permanent. And then Paul lists some of these spiritual gifts prophecy, tongues, wisdom, knowledge. He says all of those things are passing away so in contrast to love which is permanent spiritual gifts are temporary and the reason they're temporary is because when we get to the perfect he says that we won't need them anymore this is revelation 21 Then i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea i saw the holy city the new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God He will wipe every tear from their eyes there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new that's the perfect this when Jesus comes back and uh, he ushers in this new heaven and this new earth. We're going to call that the revelation world just for shorthand. What what you read there in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22, that's perfect. Oftentimes in the New Testament, the word perfect has this idea of complete. When God's purposes have been completed, when he's accomplished everything that he wants to accomplish, there's no need for spiritual gifts anymore. They're imperfect. That is, they're incomplete. They're partial. We don't need them. There's no reason to have a gift of healing when there is no sickness. We don't need gifts of prophecy or tongues or wisdom or knowledge when, according to Revelation 22.4, we can see God face to face. This We see him uh, dimly, it says in a mirror. That's uh, When you look in a mirror, you see indirectly. The, the ref, no matter how clear the reflection is, it's still indirect. When we see him face to face, then we don't need all of these other gifts to help provide insight for us. So spiritual gifts, it's not that there's anything wrong with them, he's saying to the Corinthians, but they're compared to love. Love is permanent. It's the only thing that works now and in this revelation world. These gifts, they're only for now. They're 100% appropriate for now, but you Corinthians have elevated them. You've made too much of them, particularly the gift of tongues. You've made too much of it. You've made it the standard, love is the standard. It's not just the standard because it's the character of God. It's also the standard because it alone is permanent. So this thing that is permanent, that will that affects how we live now and how we live in this revelation world, trumps these things that are partial, that are imperfect, that are temporary, only for now. It's a matter of what's appropriate. Spiritual gifts are appropriate now, as is love. Spiritual gifts are not appropriate in revelation world, but love. Is. And he lists these other three, faith, hope, and love, these three anchors of the faith, these poles that everything kind of revolves around. And even that, he says, faith and hope, those things are not appropriate for this revelation world either. Only love makes it through. You don't need faith when you can see by sight. You don't need to hope, have expectation for a better tomorrow when you're living in perfection. It doesn't get any better than whatever today is in this revelation world. So again, what Paul is saying, he's not, he's relativizing spiritual gifts. He's not saying that they're not important. He's not saying they're only for people who are immature. Maybe some of you have have been raised in places where the perfect was, they said the Bible was the perfect, and so spiritual gifts are not applicable or not relevant today. That's not where I'm coming from at all. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. I think what he's saying is these things are important. They need to be Uh, exercise from a context of love. They're 100% appropriate for where we live now, but you can't, according to what he's saying to the Corinthians, is you can't elevate them as high as you've got them. Love is over everything because it alone is permanent. So what does that look like for us? I was thinking, you know, last week we looked at this picture of love and kind of said where do you need to grow? I'm going to give you a couple of more uh, schematics, for lack of a better word. I'm going to give you a couple of, a diff- two other ways of looking at this idea of being conformed into the image of Jesus. It's a very nebulous concept. So what does it look like for us to do that? You could look at 1 Corinthians 13:4 through 7. You could see that as, here's, here's some very specific things. Kind, um, not envious, not self-seeking, doesn't keep a record of wrongs. You could look at that and lay that template on your life and see whether or not it fits. In the places where it doesn't fit, that's where you need to grow. I'm going to give you a couple of other ones you can pick. I don't care which one you use, just if any of these resonate uh, more strongly than another. First, faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. These three remain, but the greatest of these is love. For faith, I'm going to say trust. Faith for us, that's kind of a, a, a nebulous word. We can kind of pack it in with all kinds of things. We say it all the time in church. Don't really give a lot of definition. So rather than faith, I want you to say trust. Hope, I want you to say expectation. That's an expectation that uh, of a brighter, of a better future. And in place of love, I want you to say action. Love is it's how we treat one another. It's what we do with one another. Doing what's uh, the best for somebody else regardless of the personal uh, cost to you. So out of those three, trust, expectation, and action. If I made you rank them, how would you rank them? In your life, which one would you say? Yeah, this is this is something that I'm strong in, and then which one would you put at the bottom of the list and say I'm not not so hot at that? First Thessalonians one three says this: We continually remember before our God and Father the your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Work produced by faith, labor prompted by love. Endurance inspired by hope. These aren't just kind of warm, fuzzy feelings or really not even just thoughts that we have. All of these things play out in our life. You can see how love plays out. It's an action. Uh, The way hope plays out is you don't give up. You don't quit. I think faith for us, it's a little trickier to see. How does faith actually play out? He says your work produced by faith. What is that work? Here's a question that you could ask yourself. If I were to say, demonstrate for me let's show me something in your life show me a decision show me a lifestyle choice show me something that would demonstrate that you trusted god what would you give me for exhibit a what would be your example of this this is trust this is what trust looks like in my life this thing right here is what trusting god looks like for me it can't be reading the bible that's not an, an expression of trust going to church is not an expression of trust being in a small group, none of those things are expressions of trust. They're they're all wonderful, but they're not expressions of trusting God. What would it look like if I said, show me, basically prove it that that you actually have trust in God? Maybe another way to look at that is, if I wasn't a Christian, if I wasn't trusting God, what would be different in terms of these choices or these decisions that I make? That might help you see where you actually are trusting him. If I were to ask you to show me, and the thing that you're going to give me is from when you were in college, unless you're currently in college, I would say, eh, not so good. Anything current, anything you're currently doing as an expression of trust. We've talked before about that guy, the great blonde and the tightrope walker back in the 1800s, and he tightrope back back and forth across Niagara Falls, and he had a crowd, and you know he would do all these tricks. He cooked an omelet on the tightrope, and he put. Bag a sack of potatoes in a wheelbarrow and took it back and forth across the tightrope. And a guy says, I bet you could put a person in that tightrope, I mean in that wheelbarrow and go back and forth. And he says, well jump in and let's see. Faith is not saying, or trust is not saying, I think you can put somebody in the wheelbarrow. Faith is actually getting in it. There's got to be some tangible evidence that you can point to that says this is an expression of trust for me. It doesn't have to be some massive glorious headline in the paper type deal. But for you, what does it look like for you to trust Jesus on Monday? Again, I think hope and love are a little more uh, concrete. They're a little easier for us to grab onto. And Depending on what type of person you are, you probably struggle with different ones of these. Some of these come more naturally to some of us and some are more difficult. I would say for trust, it's Trust is an, is an issue for people um, who are controlling. So if, if that's you, most likely the reason you're controlling is because you trust yourself more than you trust anyone else. And the reason you might trust yourself more than anyone else is you might, you might be the smartest guy in the room. That could be true. Everywhere you go, you may be the most confident person. And if anything's going to get done well, it might very well be because you have to do it. All of those things could be true. But when it comes to you and Jesus, that's not necessarily the case anymore. And it could be difficult if you go through your whole life trusting yourself to, to then put trust upon him. Most of us don't have any issue trusting him with our kind of eternal salvation because that's so far in the future for us, it has very little impact on what we're doing now. Most of us, it's easy for us To say, I trust Jesus to forgive me of my sins, and he's going to punch my ticket when I die. It's much more difficult to think about trusting him on Tuesday. Again, if you're controlling, then it's very difficult for you. If you don't know if you're controlling, ask your spouse, and they'll tell you. Or ask someone else who's close to you, and they'll tell you. If you always have to drive, you might be controlling. If you go behind people and fix what they do all the time, you might be, you might just have a little obsessive-compulsive thing, but you might be controlling. There's not a right way to unload the dishwasher. I promise, there's not. There's not a right way to fold clothes. There's not. And if that's you, you could be controlling. And on those little bitty things, it could be an indication that it's difficult for you to trust God with today. You're going to trust Him with the future. You get that. But can you trust Him with today? Again, if you're someone, I would ask yourself the question, am I controlling? If the answer is yes, controlling is such a negative word, but I don't have another one. If that's you, then most likely it's difficult for you to trust Jesus with today. And when I asked you and I said, tell me, give me some, you're probably, it's probably a struggle for you to come up with evidence for choices that you've made other than salvation to put your faith in him in terms of your salvation forgiveness of sins it's probably difficult for you to come up with anything concrete that you've done that was an expression of trust in Jesus for many of you who struggle with control the times when you trust God is when what he wants to do and what you want to do line up perfectly because then he's made the right decision because it agrees with you and that's how some of you work it's not none of that's conscious but again it's kind of this curse of competency if you're if you're the best or you're the reliable one, you're the tr- if you're that in every situation, it's very difficult to then when it comes to the Lord to kind of put yourself out of that and say, I need to trust him with this. There's danger involved. You never know which way he's going to lead you. A lot of times it's murky. He doesn't give ten steps in advance. There's not a chart. There's none of those things that can get in the way. You have to be willing to relinquish that hope. For some of us, expectation is difficult Most likely because we've been disappointed. Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. It's terrible. Depending on the magnitude of the disappointment, it can be very difficult to get over that. So if you're kind of a glass half full person, glass half empty, if you're a glass half empty person, then expectation could be difficult for you. Hope might be the one that you struggle with. You may say you're just being realistic. Other people might say you're being cynical or you're being pessimistic. And if you're just being realistic, is it realistic with God, without God as a factor in the equation? For some of us who've been disappointed, we realize the way to avoid that is just to lower the bar. And if I keep the bar down here, then there's no way I can be disappointed. Maybe I'll be surprised, but I'm not going to be disappointed. That's not a hopeful attitude. That's not an expectation of a better, brighter tomorrow. That's stealing myself against a worse tomorrow. That can be di- even you know Mother's Day for some of you. This is a little bit of a turning the knife. You want to be a mom and you're not, or you want you have one child and you want more. There's can be difficulties around all of that. It can be easy when you've been disappointed, for instance, in that area, just to shut that off and say. Eh, not so much, if God wants to surprise me, he can surprise me, but I don't have any hope that he's actually that tomorrow is going to be any different than today. That's a life apart from God's intervention, not good. Love is the last one I think for us it's easy sometimes to think that all God cares about is what we think, and as long as our belief system is correct, then we 're good, and everything else is gravy. This is what 1 John 3.18 says, Dear children, let us not love with words or with tongues, but with action and in truth. There's this idea that what we believe in our hearts should affect how we live. We said last week, Galatians 5.6, if you want to memorize one phrase in the Bible, memorize this one about what it means to follow, what it means to live the Christian life. The only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. The only thing that counts is trusting in God that expresses itself in doing good for other people. That's it. And if we cut off the doing good for other people, if we cut off the love for others, then we've missed it. So maybe a question that you can ask yourself is who specifically are you loving? Is there anybody who has a different last name than you who you've loved in the past week or two? And if you're struggling to come up with it, this might be the area where you need to grow. It doesn't mean that you're a cruel-hearted person. It probably just means that you're too busy to notice the people who are around you who need a channel of grace, and that's what you become as a Christian. It probably just means that you're too you're so tunnel-visioned on what you've got to do that you're not noticing other folks, and you're just walking through life really fast, and there are people all around you who need to be loved. And you're not doing that. So anybody whose last name is different than you, who you've loved in the last week or two, if you can't come up with anybody, then that might be the one that you need to look at. So those three, faith, hope, and love, which one would you say you need to grow in? Another way of looking at this. So that's one. You've got this 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Here's a description of love. Grab on to any of that. Faith, hope, and love, you can grab onto that. Here's another way of looking at this whole idea of being conformed more into the image of Jesus. Paul talks about being a child and being an adult. And there's nothing wrong with a 12-year-old acting like a 12-year-old. The issue is when a 35-year-old acts like a 12-year-old. That's inappropriate. There are these stages that we go through as Christians. Here they are. I write to you, dear children, that's one. Because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, that's two because you've known him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, that's three, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you've known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God lives in you and you've overcome the evil one. So this is, don't get hung up on gender. Children, young men, young women, fathers, mothers, we're all in there together you've got these three stages of spiritual growth that have nothing to do with chronology it has nothing to do with how old you are and in my opinion it has nothing to do with how long you've been a christian there's some people who've been christians for 10 or 15 years and they're their children and i don't mean that in a negative way like they're babies there, there is some of that in the new testament that there's this encouragement to grow up but it, it it doesn't necessarily it's, it doesn't follow that just because you've been a Christian for X number of years that you have grown up. We we get bigger by default. Age makes us bigger, but it doesn't make us more mature. You've all for me one of the biggest shocks I had when I was a uh, 22, 23, 24 was realizing that adults are just as immature as kids. It's the same. They're just as petty, they're just as selfish, they're just as insecure. There's nothing about, I thought, when you graduated from high school, like it would be different. It's not. They're the same people, they're just older now. There's, there's, uh, there's nothing automatic that age does in terms of maturity, and the same thing is true emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. Just because you've been a Christian for X number of years does not mean that you've progressed through these stages of development and i don't want you to hear that one is better than another fathers are not better than children they're not they're just in different stages and what's a what's if a father acts like a child that's not good a child shouldn't have to act like a father what you want is to be stage appropriate and that's what we want to focus on is being stage appropriate not well i'm not uh, i'm i've been a christian for x number of years and this person has passed me or i'm not haven't been a christian long enough to be a father or whatever that looks like, that's, none of that matters. What matters is just walking through this developmentally. When you're a child, children here, the focus is your identity. It says you know that your sins have been forgiven and you know the Father. That is, you know you're forgiven and you know that you're a son or daughter of God. That is foundational. And until we get that, you can't move on to anything else. There are people who have been Christians for decades. Who still don't have that securely in their heart. They get it in their head, but they're not living out of a place of security over who they are in Christ. Think of what the Father said to Jesus at his baptism before he'd done anything. This is my Son, whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. And if you can't apply, if you truly can't apply that to yourself, if you can't say, God says the same thing about me, this is my Son, this is my daughter. Whom I love, with him, with her, I'm well pleased. If that does not resonate in your heart, you're not ready to move on to anything else. If you don't have that piece down, then you're striving. You're trying to earn approval that's already been given to you, which is massively frustrating and fruitless. God has already said these things are true. If you don't believe them, then you're operating from a place of of a servant. You're trying to get him to like you. You're trying to get him to love you. It doesn't work. For some of you, the issue is not that you're a son or a daughter, it's that you're forgiven. You think, for whatever reason, the sins that you've committed are too big. There's one unforgivable sin it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and none of you have committed it. You haven't. You wouldn't be sitting in the room if you had. So that means everything you have done is already covered. Totally. Completely, the Bible says God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. It's not this technical accounting. He doesn't erase with a pencil, and he can still see the outline of the sin. He blots it out. It's white out. It's, he can't see any of it any longer. And for us to hold on to our sin, it's actually an affront to him. It's saying, your blood wasn't quite sufficient for me. That's not what you're thinking, but that's what you're living. I'm not fully forgiven. If you see yourself as second class, then you see yourself other than the way God sees you. And you're saying his forgiveness extended to you was not sufficient or his restoration to you is not complete. I don't get that. He's the one that makes those decisions. And if there may still be consequences here among us, but vertically, if you confess you're forgiven, it's done. And for us to continue to live under the cloud of our past, it's an insult to the Lord, is what it is. And it's damaging to us. We're staying outside the house when he's saying, come sit at the table. That for some of you, that's the piece for you that you have to get. This idea that you are fully forgiven. If you're trying to earn it, if you're trying to work your sins off, You've missed the idea of grace completely, and you've missed what the cross is about. This idea that his blood paid the price for my sins, all of them. Everything I've ever done, everything I will ever do, no matter how heinous, it's all been covered. Which is not a license to sin, it's a license to be forgiven. And to not live under the cloud of those things any longer. And for some of you, that's that's the struggle. You're in this stage, and until you get that, not in your head, but in your heart, until you can say with confidence, I'm forgiven, I'm pure, I'm white, I'm holy, I'm chosen, I'm loved. He's well pleased with me. Until you know that, as well as you know your name, I'm talking about here. You can't really move on to anything else because you're going to be doing it from a posture of insecurity and striving trying to earn God's favor, which you already have. And so you're going to be endlessly frustrated because you're trying to get him to give you something he's already given you. And it doesn't work very well at all. Young men. So if as children, if we're working on our identity, as young men we're working on aligning uh, our lives with Christ. I think of this identity piece that's largely internal. That's kind of getting all of this stuff in here squared up with what he says. It's a lot of heart work, sometimes a little bit of head work, but it's a lot of heart work. This idea of aligning our lives with Jesus, to me, is much more external. It's behavior, lifestyle based. It's the, John says, you're strong, you've got the word in you, and you've overcome the evil one. So if you take those pieces, you can say, alright, I'm growing in my understanding of who God is. I'm getting the word in me. That doesn't just mean I'm reading it. I'm coming to a deeper understanding of who God is and what he desires for me in terms of living my life from a character and from a lifestyle perspective. There may be things that are not sinful that God would say, hey, let's, let's look at this. This is, this is going to uh, hinder you from a fruitful life, so let's ditch this, let's add this, those types of things. He says you've overcome the enemy. Even though our sins have been forgiven, we continue to struggle in this recognition that we have of saying, you know, I've got some soft spots and I need to figure out what those soft spots are. I need to figure out how the enemy continues to wear me out. Is it from, is it my pride? Is it selfish ambition? Is it behavior patterns? Is it fear? Is it doubt? What is it? What are the open doors? What are the, what's the, what, what are the, um, the easy go-to's? For the enemy, where he knows every time he just kind of sets me up and I'm gonna fall. I got to get to a place where I recognize those things and I can overcome that. That's this young man, young woman phase, and I, to me, it can be it can be work. It can be difficult. I feel like the identity thing. It's really a, it's really revelation. It's it's accepting what is in black and white here in the Bible, and it can happen in a flash. I feel like this aligning our life with Jesus, can take a little more time. There's not necessarily a, a blueprint for all of that. It's very individual. Some things are for everybody, but in general, it's kind of an individual thing. It's recognizing, all right, this is where I need to grow in terms of my understanding of who God is, and it's not just intellectual understanding. It's actually living out my life based on who I know God to be, what he's asking me to do, overcoming the enemy of my life and the way he comes at me is different from the way he comes at Matt, and so I need to recognize that in my own life and be willing to overcome that. And then the last thing you see are fathers. The focus is on investing in others. The thing that makes you a father or a mother is children. It's not age, it's not. It's children. You're not a father until you have kids. And that's what he's, the... the implication here, if he's addressing fathers, is he's assuming children. He's assuming spiritual children. And again, we would put mothers in that same category. It says you've known him who's from the beginning. There's a deeper understanding of who God is, and the expectation from John is that what these guys have freely received from the Lord, they're then freely giving to other people. Don't think about chronology I want in terms of how old you are. If you know who you are in Christ, if you're solid on that, if you're growing in the word, and if, you, if you're overcoming the enemy, I don't mean you never sin, but I mean he doesn't own you in some areas of your life, then you're a father or a mother. And the question is, who are you investing in? I talked to a girl this week, and she said, I've been in a Bible study for a long time, and I've been invested in by this woman for uh, years, and now it's my turn. That was her phrase. Now it's my turn. And so she's going to start leading a Bible study in the fall with some ladies who are younger than her. That's perfect. If you asked her, she's sitting in the room, she would not say, I've got it all together and I'm a Bible scholar. She wouldn't say any of those things. There's just this recognition in her that she's been given some things and now she needs to turn around and give them to other people. And there's more of you that probably are willing to say yes to that. There's more of you in that category than realize, I guess, is the easiest way to say that. It's easy for us to continue to If we see anybody else in the room who's older than us, then we assume it's not us. Well, it's them. That's them. That's for them. If you know who you are in Christ, if you're growing in the Word, if you're overcoming the enemy, then you're a father or you're a mother. And the question is, then who are you investing in? It doesn't have to be formal. You don't have to start a Bible study, but it does have to be intentional. There's no... This kind of investment... Does it happen randomly? You have to be intentional about saying these are the people or this is the person who I'm desiring to invest in. So 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, grab onto that, this description of love, if that's helpful for you. Faith, hope, and love, grab onto that. If it's helpful for you, this idea of children, young men and women, fathers and mothers, grab onto that. All of them are pointing in the same direction. God's desire is to conform us into the image of Jesus and he is dead set on making that happen. So that's the work that he's trying to do in your life and so the best thing we can do is figure out what exactly does that look like so I can cooperate with you. We've said before if we don't, he'll use his hands but if we're not cooperative then he uses a hammer and a chisel and that's not fun for anybody. And so we want to figure out God exactly what are you doing here and I want to cooperate with you in that and if one of these kind of schematics helps you grab onto that that's great. If it's something else That's fine, too. My encouragement to you, ask him, where are you trying to shape me right now? Because he's not, he is, he's always at work. Where are you trying to shape me right now? Where are you trying, what in me needs to change? What needs to go away? What needs to be added to make me more like Jesus? And you might can list 25 things. He's not doing 25 things. He's doing one. You want to figure out what that is so you can cooperate with him. Let's pray. God we do thank you for the uh kind of the standard that you've set for us and on one hand it's pretty intimidating because none of us probably feels like we look a whole lot like Jesus and if that's the goal then maybe we can just uh we might be easier to not play at all than to kind of get involved in that because we see how far we have to go. But then on the other hand to to think that you see that in us, that you see that type of potential in us and that you you don't lower the bar for us. You're not you're not reducing you're not lowering your expectations. God, you're telling us this this is what I want for you. This is this is the best and it's what I want for you. And you're not just saying this is what I want for you. You're saying this is what I'm doing in you. God that inspires hope in us and worth and value and all of those kinds of things. And so, God, my prayer for every man and woman in this room is that we would not be intimidated by your desires for us to make us more like your son, that we would say, all right, let's get to it. What does it look like in my life? Not with kind of this American mindset of, I'm going to work as hard as I can. i say, I'm going to trust you to do the work in my life. And as you lead me, I'm going to obey you. And over time, as I say yes more and more often, I'm going to become more and more like your son. So whatever that looks like for every man and woman in this room, God, I pray that you would speak that in these next few minutes. Show us each what you're doing in our life particularly. What does it look like for each of us to individually cooperate with you this week? In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with communion. We have some guys from Big 45 who are going to be serving. This is the way we take communion here at Stonebridge. You'll come up uh, a row at a time break off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. There's gluten-free communion that will be up here on this table if you need that. The uh, other bread is full of gluten, so y'all slide in a little bit. Uh, We'll have ministry teams in the corner. Y'all come right over here. Um, We'll have ministry teams in the corner if you want prayer for anything that we've talked about. We'd be more than happy to pray with you or anything going on in your life. And I would also say if you're married and you're struggling over the child having children issue we would love to pray with you um, about that as well so you guys can stand up we'll close with worship and Austin will dismiss us when we're done